Well, good morning. I'm Andy. Uh, JP is not with us today. If you are our guest, we are glad that you are here. He is will be heading back from um, Italy uh, tomorrow. Uh, he was over there. I uh, had the privilege of being able to facilitate a wedding, and so uh, he has been there, and uh, I get the opportunity to preach this morning. And so we are glad that you're here uh, this morning and with us this morning. Um, as we think about our text this morning, uh, this is the, the, where we are in the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. We have been journeying through his life and ministry, taking all four Gospels, looking at them in a chronological order. And his life and ministry spans over about a three-year period, a three to three-and-a-half-year period. And we are towards the end of that. We are coming into his final journey towards Jerusalem, where he will be crucified uh, and placed into the grave. And so this is where we are on the journey in our text this morning. And as I thought about this, uh, what came to my mind is res- a resume. So if, if you were here several weeks ago, I uh, had the opportunity to preach and I shared a little bit. I'm bivocational. I also do uh, real estate, real estate agent, and mentioned last time that last year was one of the toughest years from a real estate standpoint that I've ever experienced. Uh, so much to the point that I began to put together a resume trying to figure out uh, a job. Uh, and I haven't done a resume in quite a while. I've been in ministry and uh, I just hadn't put a resume together. And so I shared with my missional community and several of the guys in the missional community were trying to help me with this. But it's an interesting thing. Because a resume, you're, you're trying to present yourself. You're presenting who you are, your achievements, your skills. You're trying to uh, explain how you uh, will benefit your employer, how you would be able to do the job, what you bring to the table, what it is that you have to offer. Uh, and, and you're trying to make yourself be presentable. And one of the things that you do is you take the job description and you kind of rework that onto your resume so you're saying back what the job description says. And so you try to reword it and you try to be fancy about it and make yourself look really, really good. Uh, and that's what you're doing. You're presenting your resume. You're saying, here I am. This is what I have to offer and hope that you will get a job. And as I thought about that, uh, just the creative ways in which you say things, uh, I'm, I'm not one of these, but I was looking at this this week uh, about the different ways and titles for jobs and those kind of things. And so if you're a flutologist, basically what you do is you clean out chimneys. But rather than saying that, you say, I'm a flutologist. Uh, and then Isaac, my son, is looking at getting a job at Kroger. And we're looking at some of the job applications. And the one that he's applying for is a customer care specialist. Or someone who bags groceries. And so you create these different ways of saying something in order to try to make yourself look better uh, and present yourself in a certain way so that you are appealing to the person who potentially would hire you. And so we find something similar to this in this passage. And so Mark chapter 10, Jesus, as I said, is on his final journey towards the cross. Uh, and in this passage, Mark actually takes two stories that seem like they're disjointed and they don't fit together, but he's actually putting these two stories intentionally side by side in order to make a single point. 
What he's driving home here is who enters into the kingdom of God? Who is it that receives the kingdom of God? And so he wants us to understand what it is that, that Jesus is looking for. The posture of when we approach Jesus and what is the posture of those who receive the kingdom of God. And so my goal this morning is simply just to walk through both of these stories, see the contrast in the stories and try to help us understand the main point. And so the first story is the story of these children that are brought to Jesus, that come to Jesus. The second story is of the rich young ruler. And so there are three things I want to look at this morning. One is this intentional contrast that it, that he's uh, Mark is placing here secondly the problem of where we find our identity and the third thing is the impossible solution that jesus gives here at the end so let's think about this intentional contrast Uh, i want us to look first at the children the story of the children and here i want us to notice the necessity of our dependence look with me starting at verse 13 mark writes he says and they were bringing Children, so it was a group of people, we don't really know who, we don't really know how many, but they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, which was a common practice in this time. Oftentimes you'd bring little children to rabbis and they would lay their hands on them and bless them and those kind of things. So this, the, the practice was not abnormal. So this is what was happening. And it says that the disciples rebuked these people who were bringing the kids. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them. During this time in this society and in this culture, children were not highly valued at all in this culture because children were not seen as uh, contributing members to us household or to a society. And so the disciples are acting in this influence and being formed by their culture. They see these children being brought to Jesus. They're thinking Jesus doesn't have time for these little kids. So they're trying to stop the kids from coming. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was indignant. This is the only time that we see this word as it applies to Jesus and his response to the disciples. He was indignant. He was very unhappy in what he was seeing and watching them do. Why is that? Why was Jesus so indignant? It's because he knows that the value of these children is not in what they do. The value of the children is not in what they bring. It's not in what they contribute And so he's indignant because the disciples are being shaped and formed by the culture and what culture says versus what Jesus says. It's a culture much like our own culture that says that dignity and value is based on what you can do for me. Dignity and value is based on what you can bring to the table. Dignity and value is based on on all the different ways that you can contribute And so much like a resume is when you're applying for a job. And so what makes this even more pointed is the word children. Because the word children here has the idea of a small child, like an infant. It's not a, it's not like a teenager or an, uh, you know, a a fifth grader or something. The idea, the word children here is one that is, that is an infant, a small child. Now why is that significant? What is the point that Mark is driving home? 
Because infants don't bring themselves. They are brought to someone by somebody else's power. Infants cannot and do not bring themselves. Here's the point that Mark is drawing out here. What is true of these infants is also true of us. We do not bring ourselves to Jesus for salvation. We are brought to Him by the power of the Spirit and through the Word of God. We are brought by another power to Christ, just as infants were brought to Him. The children are not bringing their morality to Jesus and presenting their resume. They're not presenting their good behavior to Him and saying, look at me, will you accept me? They have no resume to give. And Jesus is not looking at them and He's not looking at you and what you can bring or what you can do. He's not looking at any of these things. He's looking at who you are. And like these children, we come to Jesus. We come to Him not in our own power. We come to Him not with our own abilities or our own performance or by our possessions or based on our morals or because of our pedigree or whatever other thing we want to attach to that. But we come to Jesus in our need. We come to Jesus in our deficiency. We come to Jesus with our lack. We come to Him in utter dependence upon Him. That's how we come to Christ. And so we see this first picture, this necessity of dependence. And so Mark takes this first picture and he contrasts it with the second picture, this second story. And we see here the deficiency of our doing. This rich young ruler. So look with me starting in verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey. And a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now what's interesting about this story is that you find the same story in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. And if you look at all three of the Gospels together, we find out that this this man is a ruler. He's young. He's a ruler. He has some kind of a high status or position. He's achieved a lot. Uh, and he's very, very rich. He has a lot of money. In fact, I think it's the Gospel of Luke says that he's extremely rich. And so this man on the surface seems to be eager. He's running up to Jesus. He's kneeling down before him. He's asking him this question. But notice something about the question that he asks. Notice here that he doesn't ask, what, I must, what must I believe? He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man is self-assured. This man is confident in himself. He's, a, he's confident in his own abilities, in his own behavior. He has a, a resume with a long list of accomplishments and skills and all of these different things. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Mark puts these two stories side by side in order to show the contrast. You have the infant children who can't say, what must I do? They're helpless and they're powerless. They can't do anything morally or any other way. They don't have anything to bring to the table. They're helpless, they're weak, and they're powerless. And so to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credit, who has no clout, who has no claim. An infant has absolutely nothing to bring. They have nothing to offer. They have nothing to contribute And whatever a child receives, he or she receives it by grace alone and not by merit. 
And this is very different from the rich young ruler who comes and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's my resume, Jesus. Here's my moral wealth. Here's my material wealth. What else must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice here how Jesus responds to this man in verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder and do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, in Judaism and in Christian belief, only God can be called good. Only God is is morally and characteristically good. And so rabbis would welcome all kinds of titles from people, but they would not welcome the title of good for fear that they might blaspheme against God. Because God alone is good. And yet Jesus here, notice, does not reject that title of good. But further, only God sets the standard of what is good. And we see this reflected in the commandments. And so what Jesus does when this man comes up to Jesus, he asks, he calls him a good teacher. He asks, what must I do? Jesus quotes to him the second half of the Ten Commandments. All of these, the second half of the Ten Commandments are how God expects for us to relate to one another. And so this man responds to Jesus with his resume. He says, teacher, all of these I have kept since my youth. Now, we know from Scripture throughout all of Scripture that no one keeps the commandments of God perfectly. Jesus tells us that if we look lustfully at someone, he says we've committed adultery in our heart. He says if we have hatred towards someone, we've committed murder in our heart. None of us are good. Paul says that no one is good, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfection. No one keeps the commandments of God perfectly. But Jesus here doesn't focus on that. He doesn't focus on what this man says. Instead, he presses harder to reveal what's in this man's heart. You've, commit, you've kept all the commandments, and yet you still come to me and ask, what must I do? What else must I do to inherit the eternal life? And so this man's question to Jesus, and then this man's response to Jesus reveals that he's looking at what he has done or what he needs to do to make himself right before God. And what this reveals is a fundamental truth about humanity. The fundamental truth about humanity is everyone looks at what they do in order to make themselves right before God. But despite all of that we've done, despite all that we have obtained, despite all of our good behavior, there is still an emptiness and there is a sense of insecurity and there is still this need to present our resume, not just before others, but before God. And there's still this doubt that creeps in that conjures up this question. What else must I do? Am I good enough? Jesus knows this. And so it says in verse 21 that he intently was looking at this man and he loved him. He loved him with a deep sense of compassion. And he says to him, you lack one thing. It's interesting to see how Jesus responds to the disciples indignant. And yet to this man, it says that he loved him. This is the only time in Mark that it said that. It said, says this about Jesus towards somebody specifically like that. That he loved him. 
It's almost as if Jesus knows his heart. He knows what this man's asking and he knows what he's about to tell him. And he knows how this man is going to respond. He looks at him with this intensity and this deep compassion for this man. All this man wants to hear from Jesus is what, what is it that I need to do? Just give me a list, give me a checklist, give me the opportunity, and I will do it. And he hears from Jesus' words, or his lips, you lack one thing. Can you imagine? This guy comes, he says, just tell me what I need to do. And Jesus says, you just need to do one thing. You can imagine music's going off in his ears, and he's saying, just tell me what that thing is. Tell me what it is, I will get it done, I will knock it out of the park, I will do it perfectly, I will be golden, and I will finally be accepted before God. It's not uncommon to how we often respond. Oftentimes we look towards to God and we say, tell me what I need to do. Give me, give me that task. We have this tendency to put our confidence in our good works and in our good behaviors instead of into a good God and the perfect and good works of Christ. Why is it that we seek tasks from God? I think partly it's because it's easier and it's safer. It's safer just to say, I have done this, therefore accept me because of that. And it keeps us from having to actually pursue a relationship. We want tasks and to-do lists because we can hide behind our works. It gives us a sense of control, of security and comfort to say, here is what I have done. And so Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. The issue here that I want you to see is not primarily about money and possessions. That's not the primary issue that Jesus is driving after. Rather, Jesus here is pointing his finger on the spot where he knows the man will have the hardest time to completely surrender to Jesus. What is that spot for you? If Jesus were to put his finger on that spot, what is the hardest thing that you would have to surrender to Christ? What is that one thing? The issue here is not primarily about money and possessions. It's about where this man is finding his identity. Where is he looking for his security? What is he looking to to make him right before God? He finds his identity in what he has done, in his moral wealth. He finds his identity in what he has, his material wealth. And so Jesus put his, puts his finger right there on that issue, and he reveals that the man's heart is not truly set on God, but is on what he can, can achieve. Jesus shows this man what he truly loves by revealing what he's not willing to lose. He would rather walk away from the heavenly treasure because he does not want to walk away from his earthly treasure. Side note, notice also that the commandments in which Jesus quotes this guy, he leaves out one commandment. He leaves out the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And then he brings it right back and points his finger right at the main issue. It's a heart issue. Here's the contrast and the irony of these two stories. 
Story number one, we have children, infants, who, who have nothing to bring. It is a picture of those who are weak and powerless and marginalized in society. And yet Jesus embraces them as a picture of one who enters into the kingdom. Those who have nothing who cannot point to their good works or their good behaviors as a basis of acceptance in any way. Instead, they are brought to Jesus empty-handed with nothing to contribute. And then you have story two of the rich young ruler who has everything, who has done all the right things. He has the, the moral wealth and he has the material wealth. He has it all. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, you who have everything you still lack one thing. And so there's this contrast. Story one, Jesus takes the children in his arms and he blesses them in their neediness. And we have this rich young ruler who leaves sorrowful and deeply grieved because he had great possessions. That's the contrast. But notice the problem of identity. The second story about this rich man reveals a deeper problem. Again, it's not the possessions and it's not the wealth. It is a deeper problem that Jesus is going after. It's important for us to understand that. Because Jesus is not saying that being rich is wrong. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does it describe wealth as evil. Nowhere. Nor is Jesus saying here that all of his disciples must sell everything that they have and give everything to the poor and live in poverty. That's not what Jesus is saying either. But what he's revealing is a problem. The problem is not the wealth. The problem is not the good behavior. The problem is our relationship to our good behavior and our relationship to what we have. The problem is the way that we relate to our moral wealth and the way that we relate to our material wealth. The problem is the way that we look to our good behaviors and we look to our good works for our identity to determine whether we are okay with God or not. There are lots of ways that we can take good behavior and use them in bad ways and and take good works and use them in bad ways and take good things and use it in bad ways. We can use good behavior to compensate for the imperfections that we have on the inside. We can do good works so that people see those good works because we don't want them to see the brokenness that we feel inside. For many of us, material wealth or the desire for it is a way of dealing with the spiritual poverty that we feel. For some, it is the physical beauty that we use to make up for the internal spiritual deformity that we feel in our souls. There are many ways that we can misuse these things. And so Jesus looks at this man and he loves this man and he says to him, you have put your faith in your material wealth and you're putting your faith in your moral wealth in your possessions and in your good works. And you're looking to these things to give you a sense of godliness. And you're looking to this to give you a sense of identity. But you're still lacking. Because the very thing that you're looking to in order to make you acceptable before God is the very thing that is keeping you from God. And the same is true for us. Anything that becomes the thing that we measure ourselves to make ourselves right and acceptable before God, anything that we use to measure that except for Jesus Christ himself is actually what keeps us from God. Why? Because we're looking to that thing to be our God instead of to Jesus who is our God. 
This man's problem is not in his riches, but in the, in the fact that he's unaware of his poverty before Jesus. And so after Jesus encounters this man and exposes this problem of, of where he places his identity and his trust and what he's looking to to make himself acceptable for God, he turns his attention back to the disciples and he gives them an impossible solution. Look in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, same word, infant, how difficult it is to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? You see, in their culture and in our culture, even today, there is this belief that wealth is a sign of God's approval or God's favor. You remember Job, the story of Job. He had all this stuff, very wealthy, and all of it was taken away. And his friends came and they sat around him. And essentially they were asking, what did you do? How did you disobey God that put you in this predicament? You've lost everything, so you must have disobeyed. What was it that you did that put you in poverty? This was a common thinking because the, the idea then and even now is God blesses the righteous with wealth and he takes away wealth from the unrighteous. But the truth is that there are wealthy people who are godly and there are wealthy people who are ungodly. There are wealth, there are poor people who are godly and there are poor people who are ungodly. Money is not the indicator of approval before God. Jesus is the, is the only indicator of approval before God. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he gives this ridiculous picture. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It's an outrageous story. It's an outrageous example, a ridiculous illustration, an illustration that is absolutely impossible, and that is exactly the point. Jesus here is literally talking about a camel, four legs with a hump on its back, and he's talking about a needle that you pull thread with. It's impossible. And the disciples know this. And when they look at him, they're like, "What is? who can be saved then? And so Jesus answers and he says, with man it is impossible, but with God, but it's not with God, for all things are possible with God. The point that Jesus is driving home is that your salvation is impossible for you. We cannot save ourselves. Our good behavior, our good morality, our good success, our wealth, our pedigree, our good name, our going to church, our giving of tithes and offerings, our reading our Bible and our praying and and our, our giving to the poor and being a good citizen and being just a good person, none of that can save you. You cannot save yourself. That's Jesus' point. There is only one who can save, and He is God. And so this statement... That with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible, is the summary statement over both stories. You can't, but he can. And so the fundamental problem with this man and with all of us is what he was looking to in order to make himself good enough. And it wasn't God. He wasn't looking to God. He wasn't looking to Christ. He was looking to the things that he has and the things that he can accomplish. And that was the problem. And yet Jesus loved this man. He had affection for him. Why? Why? Because Jesus could relate 
to this man on a very deep level. Because Jesus himself, in one sense, is the rich young ruler. Jesus knew from all of eternity the incomprehensible glory that he shared with the Father. The immeasurable richness, riches that he has. The perfect communion with the Father and with the Spirit. And from all eternity, Jesus knew this. And in that sense, he is the rich young ruler. He had wealth and morality. He had wealth and that he owned everything. And yet we see in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 that Jesus is different from this rich young ruler. Because the Bible tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus willingly entered into the depths of the deepest poverty that anyone had ever known. The richest one of all the universe became the poorest one on the cross. So that by his life, all of our sins would be paid for. And he would absorb the wrath of God for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. So that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Or the righteousness of God. So at the cross, Jesus experienced this brokenness of his relationship that he had with the Father so that through him, our brokenness might be healed and mended and restored back to the Father. Jesus is good enough that we don't have to look elsewhere to be satisfied and to satisfy the deep longings of our heart. And so the question that I have to ask, and I encourage you to ask, am I finding my identity in Christ or in other things? Where do I find my worth and my value and my significance and my security? Where am I placing my hope? Is it in Christ or is it in other things? Is he worth losing everything for? Or like the rich young ruler, there's that one thing. If he puts his finger on it, I'll have to walk away. Is he worth everything? So Peter hears this and he begins saying, See, we've lost, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house and brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first shall be last and the last shall be first. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Jesus calls this rich young ruler to give up everything. In that call, he's giving up, telling him to give up everything. But by doing that, he actually loses nothing. He gains everything. Because Jesus owns everything. It's all his anyways. He owns it all. So yes, there is this future reality to our salvation, but there's also this present reality. When we give up everything for the sake of Christ, we're not really losing anything. We're actually gaining everything because we're gaining Christ. So how would your life change if this reality would hold sway over you? What is that one thing? What is that one thing that Jesus, if he were to put his finger on, that you would struggle the most to surrender to him? Are you looking at your moral wealth your good behavior, your performance as to why you should inherit the kingdom of God or, or that's why you're okay with God? Are you finding your hope and your identity and your material wealth? 
Maybe Jesus this morning is looking at you intently and he's saying you lack one thing. What is that one thing this morning? What is the spirit asking you to repent of this morning? What is he saying to you to sell all that you have in order to find the treasures of heaven? That doesn't necessarily mean sell all your possessions. What is that one thing that he's saying give up so that you can have me? What is that thing? Who is it that the kingdom belongs to? Who is it that who are those who enter into the kingdom of God? Who is it or, that receives the kingdom? It isn't those who have much to offer, but those who have nothing to offer. It isn't those who have moral wealth or material wealth, but those who can do nothing but utter dependence upon Jesus. We enter the kingdom of God by saying, I have nothing, but Jesus has everything. We enter by saying, I don't have what it takes, but Jesus is enough. And my prayer this morning is that our hearts would be gripped by that as we listen to the Spirit as He presses in to what that one thing is. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You this morning. And Father, we can get caught up in these interactions with Jesus and we can miss what He's saying at times. And so, Father, as he talks about the kingdom of God and those who enter the kingdom of God, God, may we be a people who see how we are often like the rich young ruler and how we look to the things that we have accomplished or we look to how good we are or, or the opposite of that. Maybe we think that Jesus could never forgive me because of all the things that I have done. And we miss the treasure of heaven standing there. Help us to identify what these things are, to let these things go, to trust fully in Christ. Like an infant, that we would be brought to Him with nothing to offer. We have nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to contribute. We have done nothing worthy of entering into the kingdom of God. We are utterly dependent upon the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And that's not just for our eternal salvation. That is for how we live out that reality, that salvation now. So God, help us to see Christ as enough. That He is good enough. That we don't have to look elsewhere to find the satisfaction of the longing of our hearts. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.